so excited. Christmas is right around the corner. You know, uh, it's kind of hard to preach after a big thank you uh, like that. So Dan and Clint, thank you guys. Thank you to our board of elders and our board of directors. Thank you to all of you that are volunteers. Last night we had volunteer appreciation and a bunch of you showed up. And so if you're a volunteer here and you weren't able to make it last night, thank you for what you do. You know, I'm honored and it's a privilege that I get to do this, that God's called me and that I have such a great team and a great group of people here to serve and go after the vision of all that God has. So thank you uh, for your love and for your generosity. Man, I'm excited about Christmas. Christmas is just 21 days away from today. And so all the kids are excited. They're ready to get some new shoes and an iPad or a phone or whatever. And man, I love Christmas. I, I actually look forward to climbing in the attic and pulling the tree out of storage and but, you know, getting all the dust off. I actually like the process of putting the lights on. I love driving around town and seeing all the lights, decorating, celebrating Christmas. I love hanging the stocking by the chimney with care, right? I like the whole thing. I love the family. I love the food. I love everything about Christmas. And one of my favorite things when the holiday season hits are all the different Christmas movies that come on TV. And it seems like every year there's just a few that I watch uh, consistently, that when they come on, I'm just like sucked in, I'm glued in, and I have to watch. And so every year on Christmas Eve, TBS like runs 24 hours of a Christmas story, and we're reintroduced to our friend Ralphie, and Ralphie, for one more time, he comes back into our lives. And last Christmas, I tried to watch this with Lillian, uh, and she was still too little. She didn't get it. She thought it was boring. Daddy, this is an old person movie, right? And so she didn't watch it. I'm going to get her this year, y'all, and so we're going to watch it together. Or then I think about The Grinch, and I love the story of The Grinch, whether it's the cartoon version or the lightly, uh, slightly darker Jim Carrey version. Either way, they're fun. We watched that with the kids here recently, and they loved it. Titus would get scared, and then he'd get excited, and so it was so fun watching that, watching and knowing the story. Or I think about Elf this time of year, probably one of the best. Will Ferrell, I mean, you just can't go wrong. And so it's one of those movies that you just sit and laugh at. But the greatest Christmas movie of all time, I'll argue it for the rest of my life, greatest Christmas movie is Die Hard. Die Hard is the greatest Christmas movie ever. You might think, trust me, that's not a Christmas movie. I beg to differ. John McClane, he shows up to his wife's Christmas party where terrorists have taken over the, the building and so he has to fight one man against the world, you know? And so it's such a great movie. And I think the reason that when all these movies come on in December that I love them and I get sucked in so easy is because I'm so familiar with the story. I'm so familiar with the plot line. I'm so familiar with the characters and what's happening and the ins and outs and the dynamic of what's happening that no matter when I turn the movie on, I already know what's happening. So if I turn on a Christmas story and I turn it on to the scene where Ralphie is beating that one kid up, remember? It's like, what is, this is chaos. What am I watching right now? It's okay, because I know exactly where in the story we are. Or if I turn it on the very end of the movie, I can still watch when they're eating that Christmas duck at the Chinese restaurant, right? fa ra 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 right? I can watch it and I know. The reason they're there is because the neighbor's dogs came in and ate the turkey and everything went crazy. And so I can watch because I know the whole plot line of the story. I know what's happening. Or if I'm watching The Grinch, you know, on The Grinch, you see him steal all the presents and steal the Christmas tree and shove a whole Christmas tree up a chimney, which I don't know how he did that. But uh, you watch it, and I'm not nervous. I'm not sad. I'm not overwhelmed because I know that in a minute he's going to have a pivot of the heart, that he's going to have a shift, and The Grinch is going to go from the bad guy to the good guy who brings all this new Christmas cheer. 
And so the familiarity, it lets me be excited. I'm sitting in anticipation, knowing and excited about what's going to happen. Or if I'm watching Die Hard. I don't get nervous when I watch Die Hard, y'all. <clears throat> I know John McClane doesn't have any shoes. And I know the bad guys shoot out all the glass and his feet get all bloody. But that's okay. He's going to tape a gun to his back and shoot a guy, right? I know Hans Gruber's going to fall off the building. It doesn't matter. I know he's got the guy in the basement in the limo to crash it into the getaway van. I already know it's coming. And so because I know the plot line, I sit with excitement and with anticipation. And I think that sometimes when Christmas comes, if we don't get excited that he's the reason for the season, maybe it's because we forgot the plot line or because we don't know the entirety of the story. And so when we turn the story of Christmas on and we just hear about Mary and Joseph and a baby who was born in a barn, we can think, what's the big deal? Why is everybody so excited? What's all the hoopla about this baby Jesus guy? But if we knew the whole story, if we knew the whole plot line, then it would help us have some anticipation and excitement about the climax of the story because we know everything that's leading up to it. And so today I want us to understand the whole story. You know, the Bible is like a Christmas movie. It's one story. This book, though it contains a lot of characters and a lot of zigs and zags and a lot of ups and downs and it has a whole lot of different plot lines and it has a whole lot of different truths we can pull out of it, this whole book is one story. And it's one story that's leading to the answer. That one day God hangs a star in the sky. And under that star is the answer to everything that we need. But the thing is, the star wasn't the first sign that God hung. All throughout the Bible, through every story in the Old Testament, there's this idea hung that an answer is coming. That we serve a God who loves us enough to not just see the problems that we have, but to provide an answer to whatever the problem is. And so today, I'm going to do my very best to walk through the entirety of the Christmas story. Not just Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds, but the whole story. So that when Christmas comes, that we have some excitement and some anticipation about all that is to come. Because the star in the Christmas story is the thing that leads to the answer. So to really tell the Christmas story, we have to start in the beginning. So in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, right? And in the first five days, God made everything that is. And in the sixth day, he made man. So God created Adam and Eve, and he made us in his image. That mankind was made in the image of God, that means that everybody's good looking. Look to your spouse say, baby, I look just like God, right? I am good looking. And so it's in that that we know who we were made in the image of. And the Bible says that we were made to be in close relationship with God, and that we're supposed to be in unity with each other. So Adam is in unity with God, and he's in unity with his wife, and there's just joy in the whole situation. Now, I know that sometimes in the holiday season that there cannot be as much unity in your home, but we have to remember that's what God created us to be, to create us to have, is that we have joy and happiness in our relationships. And if you think about it, Adam and Eve received the greatest job description in all time. Right? They're told, they're, first of all, they look like God, so they look amazing. They're in perfect shape. They get free fruit hanging from the trees. They're completely naked, and their only job is to multiply and fill the earth with other people. That's the greatest job description I've ever heard of in my whole life. And so they're having fun. Everything's going good. The Bible says that they walk in the garden in the cool of day with God. Growing up in church, we used to sing this song, He walks with me and he talks. Right, And so we sang that song And for us, walking with God and talking with God is a spiritual experience, 
But for Adam and Eve, it was a physical, actual experience that they walked with God on a daily basis in this great environment. Except that one day, a snake slithered into the harmony that God had created. And the snake began to tell some lies. He started to ask them questions about things that God had actually said. And he began to talk to them about their identity and tell them what they weren't and who they couldn't become. And so Adam and Eve, they think that the snake's lies are better than God's truth. Because God had put one rule before Adam and Eve. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason that God gave us one rule is because without a rule, we wouldn't have the ability to follow him. So through his rule, he gave us the capacity to obey and to follow and to serve. And so he gave them this one rule so they could be in relationship. God doesn't give us rules so we can't be in relationship. He gives us rules so we can be in relationship. And so Adam and Eve, they think that they know. They think that their way is better. They think that their thinking is higher than God's thinking. And so they do the thing that the enemy tells them to do, and they break the rule that God gives. And so this breaks God's heart because now this perfect relationship he had with mankind is broken because it's separated with sin. So Adam and Eve, they did what a lot of us do when we mess up, and they hid from God. And they said, God, I feel like you're going to be mad at me. I feel like you're going to be frustrated with me, so I'm going to hide from you. But that broke God's heart because God doesn't love us less when we mess up. He's just sad that we're out of relationship with him, so he wants to send an answer to restore the problem. And so the Bible says that what God does is he comes down and he kills an animal to make clothing for Adam and Eve. And a lot of scholars believe that the animal that he killed was a lamb, that he killed a sheep and he took the wool from the lamb and he fashioned a sweater, something, I don't know what he made, and so he fashioned an outfit for Adam and Eve to put on to cover their shame. He sent an answer to cover the shame that, see how it's pre-leading the story of what Jesus is and why we're excited about why he came? It covers the shame that they had. So then Adam and Eve are removed from the garden for their sin, and they're told that they have to now provide for themselves. They have to work with their hands, and the, they have to toil in the earth to provide. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. They get in a fight. One kills the other. And the Bible tells us that almost for a thousand years, sin is abounding, that mankind is getting in worse shape and keep doing things that they shouldn't do. And time after time, as man, we make these decisions thinking we know better than God. And so God looks down at earth, and he's frustrated, and he's upset. And it says that he's brokenhearted that he even created man in the first place. And so he says, I'm going to send judgment. He says, I'm going to send a flood to the earth, and I'm going to wipe out mankind, and I'm going to start over. But he had this pull in his heart because he loved us so much. Well, Adam and Eve had another son, and his name was Seth. And Seth had a descendant whose name was Noah. And so God saw Noah living with humility and with love on the earth and being godly. And so God had a conversation with Noah, and he told Noah that he wanted him to build an ark. He said, Noah, I have a calling for you. I want you to do something to provide a way for people to survive the flood. And so Noah builds this gigantic ark, this huge ship to save mankind. And on the side of the boat is a door. And it's through this door that if you would enter into this door, that you would bypass and miss the judgment that you deserve. You see, the people have a problem. Sin is in the world. But God sent an answer through a door that we could walk through to be saved from judgment. You see, it's all one story leading up to the story of Jesus because he's the answer. So the earth is flood, and God, he baptizes the earth. 
He covers the whole earth with water. He baptizes the earth. He washes, he cleanses, he makes the earth new. And then Noah and his family come out of the ark. And the Bible says the first thing Noah does is he makes sacrifice for his sin. He makes sacrifice to worship God. And we find that in Genesis 8, 21. It says, the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. And he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. You see, even though we're full of sin, God keeps providing answers so we can be in relationship with him. So Noah and his children begin to grow and populate the earth, and over 10 generations, they fall into sin. For 10 generations, they keep doing things that they think they know better than God knows. And there's story after story of people in the Bible doing things their own way. But then God shows up, and he calls a man named Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I want to reestablish my people. I want to have a relationship with the people that I can walk with, that I can talk with, that I can love. And so he says, Abraham, I want to use you to be the father of a great generation, of a great lineage of people. And in Genesis 15, 5, it says this, Then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. But there's a problem. Abraham and his wife Sarah don't have any children. Not only do they not have any children, but they're really old, right? And Abraham's like, dude, we're shut down for business, God. What are you talking about? Like, this is not an opportunity. And so he had faith, and God provided the miraculous, and Abraham and Sarah have a child. And this child grows up to love the Lord, and his name is Isaac. And so Abraham is mentoring Isaac, pouring into Isaac, because he knows that through Isaac, God is going to do something great in the earth. But then one day, God says to Abraham, Abraham, you have sin in your life, you have sin in your family, and you need to make atonement for that sin, and I want you to give a sacrifice in worship to me. And Abraham says, okay, God, what do you want me to sacrifice, a lamb or a a bull? And he says, I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac. But Abraham has faith, and he knows that God has his best interest in mind. God gave him Isaac anyways. And so Abraham has a conversation with Isaac, and they take off on a hike, and they hike up a mountain. As a kid, I heard this story, and I always imagined Abraham as a 30 to 40-year-old dad and Isaac as a little boy. But the truth is that Isaac is a grown man at this point, and his father is elderly. But Isaac trusts his dad so much that he'll do something he doesn't want to do. Though this cup could pass from him, he says, Father, I'll lay myself down for the needs of the people. See how it's all pointing to the story? And so Isaac lays himself down. And the Bible says that Abraham picks up the knife And he's ready to strike his son dead to give God what he's asked for the remission of their sins. But that God calls out to Abraham and says, Abraham, you don't have to kill your son because God's not going to call us to do something he's not willing to do for us. And so the Bible says that Abraham looks over and stuck in a bush is a ram stuck by his horn. And so in that moment, God provided a sacrifice for Abraham. Abraham was willing to give a sacrifice that would cost him everything, but God provided a sacrifice that cost him nothing but would pay for everything. You see what God's doing? God gave a sacrifice. God gave Abraham an answer that he could not come up with on his own, but that answer paid the penalty of his sin. And so they sacrificed the 
the, the ram, and they continue on, and Isaac continues to grow, and Isaac continues to flourish. And the Bible tells us that Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And the first 11 sons were in close relationship with each other, but then the 12th son came along, and his name was Joseph. And Joseph's dad, Jacob, loved him more than all the brothers, so he gave Joseph a coat of many colors. He gave him this special, fancy, discotechnic coat. I don't know what it looked like. And so all of his brothers were jealous of him because his dad showed him some favoritism. Well, one day the 11 brothers are out in a field working, and, uh, and Joseph, he comes up on them, and as they see his shiny coat far away, they plot against him to kill him. And as he gets close, they grab him, they rip his coat off, and they throw him down in a pit. And they have this debate if they should kill him or what they should do. And right about that time, some slave traders come by. And these slave traders are headed to Egypt. So they sell their brother to these slave traders for some money to take him to Egypt. Then they go back to their dad and lie to their dad and say, Dad, an animal killed your son. So in this moment, Joseph has been betrayed. He's been sold. And a lie has been told about him that he's dead, but he's really alive. And so he gets sent to Egypt, and while he's there, he gets sold to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar has a wife who is freaky. She's a freaky lady, and she can't keep her hands off Joseph. And so one day, she's trying to get her cougar mitts on him, and he says, lady, get away from me. I'm trying to live for God. And so he runs out of the house, and then she gets all emotional because he denied her. And so when Potiphar gets home, she says, hey, Potiphar, this guy, he tried to take advantage of me. He tried to rape me. And so now Potiphar is going to side with his wife and not the guy who's just a slave that he bought. And the Bible says that in that moment, Joseph gets thrown into prison. So he started in the pit, and now he's in prison. And while he's in prison, he meets a guy who's also in prison who used to work for the king, Potiphar's boss. And that guy has a dream one night that he wakes up and he doesn't know what the dream meant. So he asks Joseph, and Joseph says, well, God can give me the interpretation to your dream. So he interprets the dream uh, that the man has, and it comes true. And then a few days later, the guy who worked for the king, he gets released and somehow gets his job back working for the king. And so now the king has this guy who knows Joseph working in his courts. Well, sometime later, the king has a dream that he doesn't know what it means. And it scares him. It rattles him. He has almost a nightmare. So he wakes up, and he talks to all the wise men, and he talks to all of the magicians, and he talks to everybody about what does this dream mean, and no one can give him an answer. But then the guy that works for him says, you know what? I met a guy in prison who can interpret dreams. So now the king calls for Joseph and says, bring this guy into the palace. So he went from the pit to the prison to the palace. And in this moment, God gives him supernatural favor, and he's able to interpret the dream of the king. And can I just tell you something? Favor ain't fair. It's not fair sometimes. There was no reason for him to have this favor and to show up in the presence of the king except that God loves him so, so much. And so while he's standing in the king, he interprets the dream, and the king puts him second in command over all of Egypt. So now he went from the slave who has no power to now being given a name that's above every other name. That people would have to come in and they would have to bow down to Joseph. You see, there was a problem for the people, but God provided an answer by elevating somebody to give them authority over a problem. 
And so some time goes by and a famine hits the land and people all over the nation are starving and dying. And one day Joseph is sitting on his throne judging who should get what food as they come. And in walks 11 brothers. It's his brothers. But Joseph uh, recognizes them, but they don't recognize him because Joseph is now in his full Egyptian getup, right? And so they don't know that it's him. And so they sit down and they tell him that they need some food. And in this moment, Joseph has all power. He's been given a name that's above all the other names. And he could look at them and judge them. He could look at them and kill them. He could look at them and kick them out of the land. But in this moment that his brothers need an answer, God gives him mercy. And he shows them grace. And he shows them forgiveness. Where most of us would look at our brothers that betrayed us and sold us and lied about us, we would want to kill them and kick them out and get retribution about what they've done to us. But God sent an answer, and it's called mercy. Sometimes in life, we deserve a penalty. We deserve to be punished for the things that we do against God. But God has mercy for us, y'all. He has grace for us. And he won't just let us off the hook, but he'll unwrap us in his arms. And he'll love us. And he'll say, come back into relationship with me. So in this moment, Joseph, he tells his brothers, not only am I going to give you food, but y'all can move in with me in Egypt. Go get dad. Go get all of our relatives. And bring them here, and we're going to party like it's 1999 BC, right? We're going to party. We're going to have a bunch of fun. We're going to do all these great things. Bring them in. And so the brothers go back and get dad and get all their friends and get all their wives and get everybody, and they move them into Egypt, and things are going great. But then the Bible tells us that something happens. The king that Joseph works for dies. And the new king that gets elected doesn't know about Joseph, doesn't know about his power, doesn't know about his favor, doesn't know about what God's used him to do. And so his whole family is now turned into slaves. And so now this God's people are now slaves in a foreign land in Egypt. And they're slaves for 400 years. They're in bondage. They're in captivity. But you see, the favor that was on Joseph and the favor that was on Abraham is still upon God's people. And so they begin to multiply and they begin to grow. And over these 400 years, they turn into millions of people. And so Egypt now has this workforce of millions of people. It's how they built the pyramids. It's how they built all the things that we've seen in movies in Egypt is through the millions of people that are now in captivity. And so the people have this problem. They're captured. They can't escape. So God sends an answer. One day, a lady uh, finds out that she's pregnant, and there's a problem with that because the Egyptian king is nervous about the millions of Israelites he has living within his borders. Because what if they elect a king for themselves? And what if they get organized? They're going to overthrow us, and they're going to be the superpower of the world. So he sends out a decree to kill every firstborn baby. And so soldiers start coming out, and they start killing babies right after they're born. But the mother who found out she was pregnant doesn't like that idea, like most of us wouldn't. And so she hides her son so that nobody would know that she's pregnant. But one day as he grows, he's loud, and he's making some noise, and she says, I have to come up with a solution, or we're all going to die. So she puts him in a basket and sends him down a river, and she waves bye to baby Moses. So baby Moses is going down the river, and as he's going down the river, out comes the princess of the Pharaoh. So the princess is out there having a pool party or something, I don't know, taking a bath, doing whatever. And so she sees this basket floating down the river and she sends a servant to grab the basket and they look in it and, aw, 
it's a cute little baby. And so she gets the baby and holds the baby and kisses the baby and says, I want to keep this baby. And I think after about five minutes, she realized having a baby is a lot of work. And she said, I'm a princess. I don't do this kind of work. I have to find somebody to do it. And so she looks over in the reeds hiding, and there's a little girl. And the little girl is Moses' sister. She's been watching the basket. And so the little girl comes up to the princess and asks a powerful question and says, can I find you a woman to take care of the baby? And Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter says, that's a good idea. Go find me an Israelite woman to come and be my servant to take care of this baby. So Moses' older sister goes and gets his mom. So Moses' mom, who thinks that she has despair, she's sent her, sent her child down the river, there's no way that she can fix this problem, God sends an answer. And so now Moses' mom, who is in all this trouble, is standing before the princess of Egypt and is getting paid to take care of her own kid that her, his dad wanted to kill. Can I just tell you that sometimes the, that God will turn what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for your good? So he sent an answer. So now Moses' mom is getting paid. She's getting government support by some people that wanted to kill her son to raise him. But Moses is trapped in this dichotomy of being fully slave, being fully man, but then being raised in the house of the king. And in that day, the pharaohs of Egypt, they thought they were gods. They declared that they were God. And so he's growing up fully man, but the son of the king and being told that he's fully God. See what God's doing here? You see the plot line? Then the same way that Jesus was fully man and fully God, Moses is having the same experience. So he's growing up and learning about all these things and learning about the laws and the, and the ideas. And so one day as Moses gets older, he's out walking the lands and watching the people work, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, beating one of his people. And so he goes and he kills the Egyptian and he hides his body in the sand. Then he gets nervous he's going to get caught. And so he runs away. He flees. He leaves Egypt and goes and lives in the wilderness in a land called Midian for 40 years. And while he's there, he works for his father-in-law because he finds his girlfriend out in the wilderness. And so he works for him as a, uh, as a shepherd. And so he's a shepherd of sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. But that's preparing him to be a shepherd of a million people in the same wilderness for 40 years. And so while he's out there one day, he walks by a bush and the bush is on fire. And he goes, that's weird. The bush is burning but not being consumed. And now we have an interaction between Moses and God. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, it says this. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. Listen to this part because it's still true for you. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God gives Abraham this answer to the problem of what do I do with these millions of people that I'm related to? So Moses goes back to Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. But the Pharaoh now is his stepbrother. And so it's some drama, y'all. And so this is a stepbrother. And so the stepbrother says, no, I'm not going to let you go. And so Moses goes back to God. God, what do I do? And God starts sending the plagues. God sends, sends plagues of hail and of a bunch of frogs and of flies. And he turns the blood of the, the river of Nile into blood. All these plagues. But Pharaoh has a heart of stone, and he won't 
budge. So then God says he's going to send one more plague. He's going to send the death angel. And the death angel is going to come one night, and he's going to come in and kill the firstborn of every person in the land. Unless the father would go and take a lamb and sacrifice the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and paint it over the doorpost of his home, then the death angel would pass over them. He would pass over, and the judgment of God would be spared on this family because they had painted themselves with the blood of the sacrifice. You see how the story is all lining up to the birth of Jesus? And so the Israelite people do that. The Egyptians don't. The death angel comes and kills many Egyptians, and now Pharaoh says, fine, go. And he sends the Israelites out. The Israelites go and all kind of crazy stories that I don't have time to get into, but I'd really like to. And so they're now living in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the wilderness, they have all these other problems. They don't have any food. They don't have any water. They don't know where to go. And so God keeps sending answers. He sends uh, quail for them to eat. He sends manna down from heaven for them to eat. He sends water from a rock. He sends a, a cloud to follow and a pillar of fire by night to follow them and direct them of where to go. God is continually sending answers. But while in the wilderness, the people of God, they think again they can do it on their own. They think they're smart enough, so they make a golden calf and they do all these different things that disrespect God. Well, eventually Moses is getting ready to pass away, so he hands the reins over to a man that he is mentoring named Joshua. And so Joshua comes along, and now he's in charge, and he's the one that's going to kick down the door and get him into the promised land. So Joshua goes, and he fights the battle of Jericho. They march around seven times and find victory in a battle that they should have lost because God sent an answer. And so now they're living in the promised land, but once they're in the promised land, the people want to look like all the other people that have some property. And so they say, you know, God, what do, we, what do we have next? We have to have some people established over us. So God sends an answer in the judges. God starts sending some judges, kind of like Judge Dredd. Remember Sylvester Stallone, Judge Dredd, back in the day? Remember Samson? Samson is Judge Dredd, right? And so he's the guy that's helping create law. And so he sends Samson, he sends Deborah, he sends Gideon. God sends all these people to help handle military issues to protect the people. But again, the people think we're smarter than God. We have a better plan. God, they say, we want a king. Give us a king. We don't want all these judges. But God says, I'm your king. You're supposed to follow me. I want to be your king. But the people complain and complain and complain. And so God finally speaks to the last of the judges, Samuel, and tells Samuel to select a king. And so Samuel works, and he finds a king, a man named King Saul. And King Saul becomes the king over the people, but the problem with establishing a king is that you now have all of these, all these new taxes. Can I get a witness, right? Because organized, organized government costs money. And so now they're taxing the people. They have to establish a military, which means they have to give their sons. And man, when in government, it creates all of their own laws. They're not affiliated with God law. And so now have to fill all these, obey all these things that they don't want to obey. So they have King Saul, then we have King David. Remember, I'm just telling you the Christmas story. We have King David, the giant killer. He killed Goliath. Then after King David, his son, King Solomon, who King Solomon is where we get the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's how we know to pity the fool, right? And so all of these people come, but then the people rebel. They prayed, give us a king. God gave him a king. And again, they think we can do it better ourselves. So they rebel, and the Bible tells us that there was a civil war between the north and the south. And so now God's people are fighting against each other. Now, I'm about to get real history. Are you okay? 
You going to stick with me? Okay, we're about to get into some history. I'm going to go fast. And so now there's this civil war happening. In the south, they have some good kings like Jeroboam and Hezekiah and Josiah. Uh, but the north, they're really rebellious and they don't really have any godly kings. And then something happens. In 722 B.C., an invading country comes in, the Assyrians, and the Assyrians take over the nation. They come in and they take over uh, the north. And so they now have dominion over the north, but the south is able to fight them off. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in and they take over the south. So now God's people that were supposed to live in this promised land thought they could do it on their own. They're now being taken over by invading armies and they're just being dominated. So because they have this new problem and they won't listen to God, God starts sending this whole new group of people called the prophets. Are you with me? It's a super history lesson, okay. And so he starts sending the prophets. He sends Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah and all these people. And also during that time, we're introduced to all these people that we would call the exiles. We meet Daniel, right, Daniel in the lion's den. We meet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who got thrown in the fiery furnace. We meet Jonah, who's in the belly of the whale. We meet Queen, we meet Queen Esther. We meet all of these people that were exiled, being dominated by the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but are still trying to be a voice of God. And then something happens uh, in the world. The, the Persians rise up and the Persians come in and they take over the Assyrians and the Babylonians and now they're in power. And you can insert the movie 300. And we've seen the movie 300, right? We are Sparta, you know, and they kick the dude and it's awesome. And so all that is, is a story they took out of the Bible. Right? And so they come in and they're going to dominate. And so the Persians are here, and King Leonidas is fighting against King Xerxes, right? But eventually Leonidas dies. And that's not actually in the Bible, it's in the Annals of the Kings, which is like a subcontext of the Bible, but I don't have time. And so, and so Xerxes comes in, and now Xerxes has power. King Xerxes is the guy who kidnaps Esther. Esther marries Xerxes. I mean, it's all in the Bible. They're just making money off of this. We need to make a movie or something, right? And so. And so they come in, and King Xerxes is now in power. And while Xerxes is in power and Persia is in power, the people of God that have been exiled and scattered all over the place, they're kind of free to do whatever they want religiously. And so they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to assemble back together in Judah, in Judea. So we're going to come back together, and we're going to assemble, and they do. And people from all over the region start moving back into the promised land. Then we meet people that I would call the restorers, Ezra. Uh, Ezra establishes the law and teaches people God's word. Nehemiah comes in and he rebuilds the wall that's been destroyed around Jerusalem. And then we meet a governor whose name is Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel rebuilds the tower that's inside the walls that Nehemiah built. So these three people, they come and they reestablish everything that was broke down. And so even when mankind messed up, God sends an answer to come and have some leadership to reestablish his kingdom on earth. And so as that's happening... Right after they get the temple built and God lives in the temple, for 400 years, there's silence. There's 400 years of silence where God didn't communicate. He didn't send a prophet. He didn't send a king. He didn't send somebody to come in and do this great thing. 400 years of silence. But you know what I've learned in my life is that just because God's silent doesn't mean he's not working. And so God's at work. And he's doing all kind of things. And the people don't understand it. We're now in the promised land. We now have a temple and we now have some walls to help protect a region. But God, where are you? What are you saying? And so there's some amazing things that happen in history 
Uh, and there's a guy that we're introduced to that's not talked about directly in the Bible. He's prophesied in the book of Daniel. But there's a guy that comes on the scene named Alexander the Great. So this is now history lesson, not in the Bible. But Alexander the Great comes in, and he conquers the known world. And he kicks out the Persians and the Assyrians, and he kicks out the Babylonians. And this dude is large and in charge, and he takes over. You might say, well, trust me, why does that matter? Well, it matters because Alexander the Great, he established a common language in every place that he took over. He dominates Egypt and India and Africa and all of these regions and he teaches all of the people to speak Greek because throughout all this time they're speaking all these different languages and they have all this different dialect so there's no way to get one message out to all the people and so what he does is he goes and he takes over and he captures all the men and he makes those men fight in his army that's what we saw in 300 right all these other armies fighting for one guy and so they all learn Koine Greek which just means common Greek and then they go back home, and it's now the law that this is what you speak, and they teach Greek to their families. So now the whole world knows Greek. But trust me, why are you talking about that? Why is that important? Because 300 years later, a book's going to be written that God wants that message to get to not just his people, but to the Gentiles, to all people, to everybody all around the world. And so God uses an evil man to create a linguistic delivery system so that people can be saved through the gospel. You see, God will take what the enemy means for evil and he will turn it for your good by sending an answer to do something great in the earth. And so then all these other things happen in history. Alexander the Great dies and so he has four generals that fight with each other about who's going to be in charge. After that, one of the guys wins and uprises the Roman Empire. So now Rome, who speaks Greek, is taken over the earth. Rome is the superpower of the planet. And we meet Julius Caesar uh, in 49 BC. So Julius Caesar is in power 49 years before Jesus is born. In 42 BC, Julius Caesar is assassinated, and a man named Caesar Augustus takes over the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus is in charge, and he's approached one day in 31 AD by a man who wants to be the king of the Jews and his name is Herod. So Caesar Augustus establishes and appoints this guy named Herod to be over the king of the Jews. So let's do a, a quick recap. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, to Joshua, through the judges, through the kings, through the prophets and the exiles and the restorers. Then we meet Alexander the Great, then we're introduced to Julius Caesar, and then finally, Caesar Augustus and King Herod. Trust him, what's the big deal? I'll show you. Because in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 2, it says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So here we go. Joseph, Jesus' dad, is related to King David, who is descendant of Abraham, who received a promise of God that through him we would have a deliverer. And it says he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and she was expecting a child. 
While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She named him Jesus. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger. So Living Church, that is the Christmas story. It's way bigger than some wise men and some shepherds. It's the whole story. The whole Bible points us to the answer. It points us to a moment where God hangs a star in the sky and he says, look over here. Because over here is the thing that you've been searching for. It's the thing that you've been needing. Jesus is the answer. You see, Jesus is the one who will come in and he'll cover our shame. So when we mess up, we don't have to run away from God, but he's the lamb that was slain to cover our nakedness so we could stand in relationship with God. You see, he's the door that we can walk through. Remember, Noah built the ark and put a door on it. Jesus is the door that we can walk through so that we don't receive judgment when destruction comes. It's all about Jesus. He's the sacrifice for us that cost nothing, but yet paid for everything. So we don't have to sacrifice our sons and our daughters. We don't have to sacrifice our lives. God provided a ram in a bush for Abraham, and he provided his son on a cross for us so that we could have an answer to the problems that we face in this world. And that son of his was given favor. He was given a name that's above every name so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. But when we come to him, he'll have mercy on us. He'll have grace for us. He won't cast us out because how we did him wrong, but he'll embrace us and love us and care about us. You see, Jesus is the answer. He grew up fully God and fully man. And so he was prepared to be our deliverer. And so if you're in bondage this morning, if you're in captivity this morning, there's an answer and his name is Jesus. He sent Moses to them and he sent Jesus to us to help us get out of the things that have us held captive. And see, he's the restorer. The walls were broken down and the temple had been torn down, but he sent men to come in and to restore things that were broken. So no matter what's broken in your life, Jesus is the answer. He's the thing that can help rebuild these things that are broken. And so church, I want you to know that the Christmas story is a lot more than the Christmas story. It's the whole story. It's the reason we get excited. It's the reason we hang lights from the ceiling and sing Feliz Navidad and got trees in the lobby is because we're trying to say, God, thank you for the Christmas story. Thank you for sending a son who would be our savior and our king and our deliverer and the one who would rebuild us. But you know, the Christmas story, it's not only for Christians. Christmas is Christ Mass, and Christian is based out of that we are Christ followers. But this holiday isn't just for Christians, y'all. It's for everybody. The reason that God waited until there was a common language around the world was so he could broadcast this message to all of mankind. And do you know what our job is? To broadcast this message to all of mankind to go out into the highways and the byways and where we work and into our families and into our neighborhoods and to tell people, hey, we know the answer. The answer is Jesus. The answer to your financial problems and your marriage problems, you don't know what to do with your kids and your addiction and your shame from the past and that time somebody did you wrong, can I tell you, the person who can answer those hurts is Jesus. And so Christmas is for us. We're going to celebrate and we're going to have fun and we're going to sing Christmas songs and I'm going to watch all the Christmas movies, right? 
But we have to remember the reason for the season is Jesus. So I want to engage you in the story. Can I engage you in the story? I want to help, I want to help you be a part of this legacy of the story. In a couple weeks, we're going to have four Christmas Eve services. And in America, almost everybody goes to church on Christmas. And what we want them to do is we want them to come into a place to hear that God loves them, to hear that God desires to have a relationship with them, not shame them, but to take away their shame and cover them in forgiveness. And so when you leave today, the ushers are gonna pass out these cards. They just say the answer and service times with a map on the back and the website and all the stuff that people could be asking. And we wanna engage you in the Christmas story. We're better together, right? We fly farther together. We grow stronger together. And so if together we go out and we say, I'm gonna reach people, I'm gonna love people, I'm gonna invite people into a place to get to know God, their lives will be changed. And then in a couple months, we'll be baptizing them and they'll be saying, you know, I'm thankful for my friend so-and-so who invited me because now my whole life has changed. So today as, the, as you leave, please take some of these and take them to work and pass them out and invite people. It's literally a freebie, y'all. That's why we're doing four services, is to get people in and tell them about how much Jesus loves them. But before we go, I've got to imagine there's somebody here who heard the whole Christmas story and realized maybe for the first time that God loves you. And then no matter what you've walked in with, no matter what you're carrying, I wanna tell you this morning that God loves you more than you can even imagine. And he did all of this so he could restore a relationship with you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here and you say, you know, pastor, I'm far from God. I need, I need to ask him to come into my life and him, ask him to forgive me my sins. Today, we wanna give you that opportunity. I had it and hundreds of people in this room have had that same opportunity. And we want you to just say, God, forgive me my sins and come into my heart. And so if you're here and that's you and you wanna say a prayer to ask the Lord to forgive you for your sins, on the count of three, I'm gonna ask that you just raise your hand. We're not gonna stand you up or embarrass you. Just raise your hand and we're gonna pray a simple prayer over you from your heart to God's heart, saying, God, forgive me of my sins. If that's you, raise it up on one, two, don't wait, three, if that's you. Yep, I already see this hand over here. Yep, I see this hand, I see this hand. Four, five, six, all over the room. Anybody else say, today's my day. I wanna give you just, yep, I see you, sir. I want to just give you another minute. If you'd say, today's my day, I want to ask Jesus Christ in my heart. You can put your hands down. Yep, I see. It's okay. LC, would you pray with me and these few that raised their hands this morning? Everyone say this. Say, dear God, forgive me my sin and come into my heart. Be my answer. No matter the problem, no matter how hard it's been, I know you're my answer. From this day forward, I'm going to live for you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Can we give those people a hand this morning?